Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the last few verses today of John chapter 11 and the first bit of John chapter 12. Remember, we've been talking about the story of Lazarus and his family and how he was raised from the dead. And so now we're going to kind of conclude this story with a dinner party at the home of Lazarus and his sisters. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with the word. Fathers, we come to your word, pray that you would um, comfort us with the hope of the gospel. May we not read your words and see a book full of instructions that we should do in order to be better people. Um, you were the good man, and because of your goodness, because of your righteousness, because of your mercy and kindness, we have redemption. And so help us to see that on the words of your book. Help us to be convicted of our own sin as we seek to worship you. Open our hearts and our minds that we might learn from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I used the Lord of the Rings uh, illustration last week, and so I thought we'd go ahead and make it a twofer. Uh, why not, hey? Uh, another Lord of the Rings illustration today. Um, as I read through this passage, I was struck by the idea of hypocrisy and this idea of having false motives, having uh, kind of a pretense about you. And I think no other person in fiction demonstrates that better than the man by the name of Boromir, who was the son of another man named Denethor and all these crazy names. Well, they were in this land called Gondor, and... Denethor, Boromir's father, was the steward of this land. He was keeping over it until the real king would eventually return. And so that king who was to return was also in the story. And Boromir's family just happens to be mostly corrupt, and they wanted power and glory above all. So as Aragorn, this coming king, and the hobbits return with the ring of power, what the whole Lord of the Rings is about, they go to Rivendell to seek counsel from all of Middle-earth, and Boromir comes. And Boromir insists that the ring be used against the enemy. That instead of destroying it, that instead of destroying this great source of evil, that we should take it and allow it to be used, allow it to be taken to the city of men, he says, and that we should keep it there and we should use it against our enemy. Well, everyone except Boromir, sees the folly in this. And so they elect a group of nine, of which Boromir is a part, and they go to destroy the ring. And Boromir, of course, wants to go on this trip, and he, apparently for good reasons, but he has ulterior motives, because he still wants the ring. He will stop at nothing to get this ring for himself, and we'll see that. In our text today, we're going to see a few different parties that have these false motives. And as we near the time of Jesus' crucifixion, I titled the sermon, The Gathering Storm, because there's this idea that everything is moving now towards the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of these events have been now triggered into place that are kind of this unstoppable giant moving forward towards the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so, 
as we talk about the story, we're going to be dealing with these motives surrounding the orchestration of that event. And we're going to see some of the normal enemies, of course, the Pharisees, the chief priests of the law. We're also going to see one of his own now, Judas, who has been outed as an enemy in this passage. And his false motives directly lead to Jesus' death. And I think we'll see how we, like these folks, also have motives when it comes to the work of Christ in this world and when it comes to who gets the credit for that work, who gets the credit even for our own salvation and our continued sanctification. So we'll look at this in three points, the plot to kill Jesus, the supper to honor Jesus, and how the plans of Jesus will not be thwarted. And so as we come to the text, let's stand together as we read it. John chapter 11, starting at verse 55, and reading through chapter 12, verse 11. John chapter 11, starting at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so she might keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the first thing that we read in this text as we look at this plot to kill Jesus, the first thing we read is that the Passover is at hand. Passover is a really big deal in Jewish culture. Uh, it was the time that they would remember how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And we're all familiar with that story. And remember how the angel of the Lord spared them, the people of Israel, and took out the firstborn of every Egyptian home. And they remember this as a people. You can read in Exodus 12, as this is commanded to them to keep for all generations. And now you have this idea of these people going up to be purified. And you read this in a couple of places. I think Numbers chapter 9 is a great place to look at this if you want to. 
But this outlines the idea that you should be clean for the Passover. You should not come to celebrate the Passover and be unclean in any way. And it talks about how touching a dead person might make you unclean. Or if you're going to be traveling a long distance, how you need to be purified. And all these different things that can make one unclean that we that you can read about in the Old Testament. You are to be clean when you come to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover isn't just a... Well, maybe we'll go to the Passover this year, or maybe we won't. We'll just decide. This is a mandatory exercise for all Jewish people. And to not celebrate it would literally mean that you were cut off from the people of Israel. And so I find it interesting that they were curious as to whether or not Jesus was going to be there. Of course he was going to be there. He was a Jewish man. He upheld the Jewish traditions, as we've been shown over and over in this book, these traditions pointed directly to him, just as the Passover does, of course. And so, of course, he's going to be there. And again, just talking about this act of being clean before the Passover. This is merely a formality. It is a commandment of the Lord. But is anyone truly ever clean simply by washing themselves in some water and waiting an amount of time, several days, before they're clean. No. We know from Scripture that all men and women are in sin, and so no one is ever truly clean because of this taint of sin. The sacrifice of animals, the eating of the Passover lamb, only symbolized the one who would come so that these things would finally be fulfilled. And so Jesus' coming then fulfills these types that we see in the Old Testament. And they make it so that not only these Jewish people here, but also Gentiles could partake in the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins. And so get this here. This is what's crazy about this passage. These chief priests and these Pharisees are here for the feast as well, and they've gone through this purification ritual And so they have to be clean, yet in their cleanliness, they are plotting to kill Jesus. And they're asking others to join this plot as well. This is the worst kind of hypocrisy, right? The Pharisees and chief priests want everyone to believe, and we've read this up to this point, they want everyone to believe that they are great on the outside. The Pharisees and chief priests, they are great, they're holy men, that they're the best and that they, they only have the best of their people in mind, and they want to get rid of this Jesus because he is a scourge on the land, and Rome is going to destroy them if they don't get rid of Jesus. Jesus broke the Sabbath, right? And he, he blasphemed, so we're just protecting the sheep of Israel because we're going to bring this man to justice, and we're going to do the right thing. Yet, over and over, what we've seen is that Jesus has actually done no wrong. And they seek to kill him, Because they know he is who he says he is. And if he is the Savior, then their hold over the people is coming to a really quick end. And this Jewish religion that has made them look like saints for all these years was going to be completely changed, whereas the only good one is the one, Jesus Christ. The only good man is Jesus Christ. And he came to make these sacrifices and these feasts complete. 
so that anyone, not just a Pharisee or a chief priest, but a sinner, a tax collector, a thief, could be clean. And this drove the Pharisees crazy. And I think if we're honest, sometimes it bothers us. If you've ever thought about it. Because many times, we want to decide who the message of the gospel is really for. Because we think we're the standard. Not the Lord Jesus. This manifested itself in the early church. You can read through the, the, uh, the New Testament and see this. The gospel wasn't for those who were uncircumcised. It was only for those who were circumcised. And even the Apostle Peter was guilty of this and had to be rebuked by Paul. Later, what do we see in the church? Well, they begin excluding different races of people all over the world. And this goes on for many, many generations and still going on today, basically, in a lot of places. And so now, who, who might we exclude? Well, well, we'll pick some little group and exclude them. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, think about the issues that are going on in the culture today. Who might we exclude because of their sin? And who might we say you can't have forgiveness to? Homosexuals? Democrats? I mean, there's lots of things that we might put in that box. We have to be really careful because many times our own prejudices will dictate who we think the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. And so we have to be careful because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we don't know who his people are. Remember those other sheep that he talked about that he said he had to go get? Well, we don't know them, so who do we preach the gospel to? Everybody. And so when we carry these prejudices around, then we are no different than these Pharisees who wanted to be clean for the Passover, but also wanted to kill Jesus, which makes no sense. So we need to be careful with that. And so that brings us to this supper, then, to honor Jesus. And it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of these reclining at the table with him. The Greek word here for the word dinner is actually kind of a special word. It's not just eating together, but it actually denotes kind of this large gathering. And you see Lazarus reclining at the table, which is not really something we do today because they had these little, like, really short tables, and they would, like, literally lay on one side and eat. Which I, I mean, I think I would get tired eating that way, but I guess they, they did, that was what they did. So, uh, and this was a, a special gathering of people where many would come. It was a feast to celebrate Lazarus. Why? Because now Lazarus is alive. He was dead. Now he's not anymore. That's kind of a new thing. Well, Jesus would have been a celebrity all over by this point, all over the place. And he definitely was in this small little town of Bethany where many actually witnessed Lazarus walk out of the tomb and the grave clothes strip off his body and him be a live person again. So you can almost picture this feast, because I don't picture that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in this giant mansion or anything. So they're probably in this little house with just a few people in there. But then you have all these other people gathered around outside their door kind of looking in like as if they're sort of window shopping or so. You know, they're looking in to see what's going on. And here they are eating dinner with the one who calls himself the Son of Man. Everyone's wondering around what's going on inside. 
And so this feast is to honor Jesus. And I love how we get this, uh, this different categories here. So they have a dinner there. Martha served. Lazarus is reclining at the table. And then we have what Mary does. And so Mary has her own ideas of honoring the Lord. And we read in the text that she takes, it says that she takes a pound of expensive ointment. Uh, this pound is probably around a half liter, which is a big, big amount of ointment, as of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. You don't really use the word pure nard anymore, and you kind of have to wonder what that is. Well, it's this real expensive kind of oil that the Romans would import from the eastern countries like India, and it was used for anointing the head. I mean, think about um, kind of like essential oils today. So you understand the expensive properties of this. This comes from like some flower up in the Himalayas that they can extract these oils from, and apparently it smells really nice and it's a good thing um, where there's not, you know, running water and that sort of thing. And so having this big bottle of expensive perfume is nice to have. Well, it was very expensive. Judas said that the uh, the oil could have been sold for 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. So you want to think about, in today's dollars, uh, the, the wages for a common worker, maybe $10,000 bottle of perfume in today's money. That's expensive perfume. I think perfume that's like 50 bucks is expensive, much less $10,000. And so she takes this bottle that would normally just put a little bit on the head of a person. And she anoints not only the head, which we read in, in the book of Matthew, we, we read the same story, but she also anoints the feet of Jesus. And then she wiped the feet with her hair. How is this then an act of devotion? How is this an act of worship? Well, a few things. She took something very expensive, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. Normally, dealing with the feet was something that was reserved for the lowliest of servants. Typically, when the people would come in the house, there was a servant there. He would rinse the feet because, you know, you didn't have toe-covered shoes back then. Everyone walked around in sandals, and it was a dusty place, and everyone had kind of dirty feet. And so there was a servant there who would wash their feet, so when they came into the house, they weren't tracking uh, dirty feet everywhere. And so she takes and washes his feet with her hair. A Jewish woman would only let her hair down in her home and never around other men who weren't her husband. Ever. However, she felt such a close, personal devotion to Jesus that she let her hair down in his presence. Now, don't do what a lot of people do with this and make some sort of romantic connection here at all because it's not there. She dearly loved this man. He sat and cried with her when her brother died. She, he raised her brother from the dead. There's an apparent connection between Jesus and this family that has been ongoing for some time. She dearly loved Jesus, but not in any kind of romantic way but the kind of love that a servant might pay to a good and loving and kind king. 
or the kind of love that someone might pay towards their Lord and their Savior. And so the whole house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume. And everyone is likely standing in awe of what's going on. This isn't something that normally happens at dinner time. And so no one would have missed the fact that Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. The disciples know why he's going to Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus know why he's going to Jerusalem. They know he's headed to Jerusalem to die. And this act was a kind of recognition of that. Not only honoring him for what he had done for her in raising Lazarus from the dead, but what he was about to do for all of his people. Jesus even says to Judas, let her alone, that she might keep it for the day of my burial. What does she mean by that? That she might savor this memory of her Lord in these last days that she has with him. And so even in this moment of worship, even in this moment of devotion, where everyone is sitting around honoring Jesus, where this woman comes and basically gives all she has we get Judas, who breaks the silence with this question. We see some more hypocrisy here, because he has this question for the Lord. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas's question, and he asks this question, he questions the act with a bit of false mercy, as if he cares about the poor. He says he could have made 300 days wages, and we could have given that to the poor. But what does John quickly tell us? Well, John quickly lets us know that they all knew what was going on with Judas, what he had really planned to do with the money. He would love to keep the money for himself. He was a thief and a liar, and he was taking this money that was in their common pool and taking some for himself. And we know what kind of person Judas is, because he would soon betray Jesus for ten times less than this. Thirty pieces of silver. So he wasn't the kind of man who really cared that much about a whole lot of money. He would have done, he would have done a lot more for a lot less. And so Jesus cuts him off here pretty quickly. And he says, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Jesus, again, is quoting scripture here. This is Deuteronomy 15, chapter, or verse 11. And so don't look at this at, as him discouraging us from helping the poor, obviously, or discouraging the disciples from helping the poor, because we are to help the poor. We will always have the poor with us, is what it says in Deuteronomy. We are to help them. We are to, to serve them. But he's alluding to this pending situation. He was going to die, and what Mary did was absolutely appropriate. And so I can't help, when I read this, I can't help but think that there are many times that I've had this kind of false mercy that Judas has here. We know the good that we ought to be doing. We know the mercy that we ought to be extending as believers. And a lot of times, sadly, in this world of social media, it's just easy to uh, to make someone think that you really care about him by just posting the word prayers on their Facebook page. And we really have no intention of praying for them or thinking much more about them. And we kind of extend these little cute 
uh, offers of mercy, but we really don't plan to extend any sort of mercy to them. And I think this is this great juxtaposition going on here in the text. Mary showing genuine love and devotion for her Lord, and Judas showing genuine care for the bottom line and his own financial situation. And that's the thing about motives. Many times a black heart can look the exact same as a pure one on, out, on the outside. And it's only after examining the heart that you can know for sure. And so for us and for me, this passage has really caused me to think about my motives in doing good, in speaking kindly. Do I do it so that I can be seen doing it? So that others will see me doing the things that are right? Or do, because I really want to see the kingdom of God go forward. Do I want glory for myself? Like Judas wanted here? Hey, we could give to the poor and you can put my name on it. Do we really want glory for ourselves or do we want to give glory to the Lord, which Mary is doing here? She had no concern about the value of this bottle of perfume. She had concern for her Lord. Our Lord Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our motives. When they are black, when they are good sometimes, thankfully, thanks be to God, and when they are most of the time a mix between the two, right? Some good, some bad. He knows our hearts. Thankfully, thankfully, it's that confused mess. It's that sinful condition that he came to save. Aren't we glad? Because without it, we'd be stuck here in this place, only ever having to think about ourselves and only ever wanting to give glory to ourselves. But even while we were completely self-absorbed, and our black heart with terrible motives, Jesus came to die for us. Thanks be to God. We were his enemies, and he loved us, even though we were his enemies, and he saved us with his blood. And not only that, we still act like that at times. We still act just like Judas does in this passage. It'd be easy for us to look at him and think, wow, he's a bad person. It'd be nice if we were good people all the time. Yet, even when we act like that, he still seeks to use us. He uses us to preach the gospel. He uses us to be his ambassadors to his kingdom on the earth, doing his work, helping the poor, even when we have bad motives in doing so, helping the needy, being a light to those who live in the darkness. Thankfully, he stays with us, and he will until he brings us home and perfects our imperfect hearts. And so lastly, we'll look at this idea that the plans of Jesus won't be thwarted. And you have this idea of this, uh, you know, that Lazarus is kind of a celebrity too. He's drawn many onlookers, and it's not every day that someone raises from the dead and then just goes on about their way. However, this popularity has drawn the ire of the chief priests and the Pharisees. However, the problem wasn't this circus caused by Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But the problem, the thing that bothered them the most was that this act was causing many people to believe. Just like the acts that Jesus had been doing all along since he had started his ministry. All of these acts were causing people to believe. How many times have we read now in Scripture that they saw what he did and 
they believed. We've read that a lot. Jesus is gathering a following of believers just by going around and undoing the curse of sin. By seeing the wrong things made right. By being the Lord of all creation, people are following him as we would expect to see. And Lazarus was just a product of what Jesus was doing, yet now he was going to be the target, just like Jesus was. And I think we should take this a couple of ways as it really shows us the heart and the mind of an unbelieving world. First, I think it shows their complete irrationality. Rather than face the facts of what they've seen and heard, I have lots of friends who know, who know that this is a true thing. They can't get around the fact that what Jesus Christ came and did is a real thing. However, they would rather just destroy any evidence. They would rather just belittle Christians. They would rather just discount anything that's real and good. We see this all the time. What do they attempt to do? That they, Because they know it is true, we know this in Romans 1. Paul says that they know that it's true. They discredit the scriptures. They discredit the historicity of Christ. They want to discredit the history of the church and what the church has done. Rather than face the facts, they're just going to destroy the evidence. Rather than face the facts of Jesus is the Messiah, let's just kill Lazarus so no one will believe in him anymore. What's incredible in our world is this hypocrisy. You know, think about when a celebrity falls morally. It causes the world to rethink the morality. Well, maybe they weren't wrong when they did that. Well, what's wrong with our society? There is no wrong. There is no right. Whatever you want to do, you go ahead. If you want to say you're something else, it's fine. You can be whatever you want to be. You just got to say it. You just got to believe it. It's terrible. There is no wrong. There is no right because we don't want to admit that there's a wrong or right because if there is, there is a God who holds all of that in order. Because when a Christian falls, what do they say? Look how horrible Christians are. There's only a wrong or right when it comes to us. Rather than hear and accept the words of Jesus, they attempt to discredit their followers, and we should be careful in this world. So secondly, which goes right along with that, it shows us that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, if we are a follower of Christ, we will have opposition. They'll oppose us because they oppose their creator. They oppose Lazarus because they opposed the one who raised him from the dead. They wanted to kill him. Lazarus was probably just a normal dude who got raised from the dead, who happened to be friends with the creator, which is a good thing. Got raised from the dead, and now they want him dead. And so they oppose us because they oppose our creator. And in conclusion... Let's make sure we understand we were once like that. We once opposed our Creator. We once wanted His glory for ourselves. Like Judas, like these chief priests and these Pharisees, like Boromir in the story that I shared earlier. Well, you know what happened to Boromir. The story ended tragically because he didn't understand the folly of his ways until it was too late. A lifetime of seeking his own glory led to his demise because the ring of power serves one master, and it wasn't him. So we too would serve ourselves as master were it not for the true Lord of all, 
Jesus Christ coming that we might have eternal life through the sacrifice that he made for us. And so let us then seek his glory in all we do. And it'll start with a recognition that there are times that we don't. It'll take others helping us to see when we don't and where we don't in our lives and constantly taking those sins to the cross, seeking forgiveness and repentance. Let us seek his glory that we might show it to others and let us live our lives like that of Mary here as an act of worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, we pray that you would help us to that end. Uh, many times I am Judas sitting there questioning a good thing because I want glory for myself. And so forgive me. Help me to see what you are doing. Help me to seek your glory in this world, to see your kingdom come upon this earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.